Hello, Gabnez. And thank you for gulping down your 93rd dose of scoring at the movies, and I just scared Chris. We track back a bit to review and spoil sports flicks from days of yore. Gabnez! I'm the blunt instrument who doesn't shake or stir his drinks, and whose left eye might not bleed, but is still pretty much useless. Ryan Ellis. And here's the poker enthusiast who sucks the psychosomatic blood off his lover's fingers while fully clothed in the shower. You know his name. Lord Chris DiGregorio. Back to being a lord. Oh, wonderful. I mean, it is thematic, right, given this movie, but I appreciate that, Ryan. In my usual way of paying homage to the movie we're going to talk about, it was going to be my plan to, and just for everybody that doesn't know, we're on the second floor of Ryan's place here. So I was going to walk up the stairs, emerging out of the staircase, much like uh, Daniel Craig out of the water in my tiny (laughs) Speedo, but I got two steps out of my door, and it's like 10 below outside tonight, so... It would not have been a pretty scene. The shrinkage would have been real. I was not in the pool. So I By the way, Celsius temperatures, 10 below. Fahrenheit, that's very cold. <laughs> Even Celsius, pretty cold. It wasn't going to happen, so pulled an audible in that plan. I am interested that you chose the hardcore Cockney opening to this movie, but not Snatch. <laughs> the Snatch would have been... <laughs> Did I not do anything like that in Snatch? I don't think so. <laughs> I could try to be posh, Chris, but I'm not very posh. I'm not a Eva Green type. And Eva Green type. Get your grammar correct, sir. That was quasi-Beatles morphing into... Monty Python? Monty Python, yeah. That was great. Okay, we've been talking for a while about various things, including my eye damage. Just coincidentally, it's part of my intro I wrote hours ago, but then we talked about eye damage for me. Chris is wearing a Christmas sweater, by the way, which looks cool. And we are going to be posting this a few days before Christmas. But I've had several drinks in this time, or not several drinks, but several sips of a drink. You better open your beer right now before we get going on Casino Royale. If I recall correctly, in the book, Casino Royale, Bond says that he only likes to have one drink when he has to concentrate, but he likes it to be a big one, and that's why the Vesper cocktail that he makes up in this movie is like four and a half ounces of hard liquor. I don't think you could be blamed if you had several drinks just leading into this podcast, because if we know anything about James Bond at this point... Alcoholic. Yeah, raging, if functional alcoholic at least from a professional standpoint he's definitely not functional from an emotional or no. personal standpoint this is his most vulnerable version as well at yeah. least in this first movie i don't remember the other one so well. i've only seen skyfall twice and the other one's only once each and i haven't even yet seen no time to die as we get at the end of december i don't think you have either right no i haven't not yet we picked this for the poker by the way so sports movie does require air quotes but not entirely there's a fair amount of poker in this film What is the beer, by the way? You didn't tell me what the beer is. Oh, sorry. This is a stout from one of my old standbys, Leftfield Brewery. I've had their beers a few times, but the stout felt appropriate given how cold it was and so cold it forced me to abandon my Speedo plan. So (laughs) I'm disappointed about that, by the way. And Canadian Club and Diet Pepsi, as always, over here. Go ahead. You are right. We're stretching the boundaries a little bit, calling this a poker movie, even though, like you said, there's quite a bit of it portrayed in this movie. And you are going to hear all of my pedantic complaints about that at some point. Mm -hmm. There's also horseback riding. Let's not forget that. We have the scene of that one guy that Bond is tailing in the Bahamas, the one he wins the Aston Martin off at the poker table. 
his wife. She is introduced by riding down the beach in a sarong on horseback. Equestrian lady. Yeah, being chased by a crowd of young children. All I saw was her. I did not see a horse. (laughs) Well, I couldn't blame you for that, but it reminded me so much of we went to Aruba some years ago in a group, and famously you rode down the Aruba beach in a sarong just being tailed by children all the way. Daily. It was just what you did in the morning to wake up. So it was a little bit nostalgic for me to see that movie. I was hotter uh, that then. scene. Yeah. It was eight years ago. You rocked that sarong back in the day. <laughs> well, it'll be a fun episode here to end the year. But this is the 21st Bond film, and it premiered in London 15 years ago on November 14th, 2006. November was a typical release date in the modern era. And then this movie was released on this continent over here in North America later that week, and it was a worldwide smash. You talked about the book. So there was a 1953 book by Ian Fleming. Right. And it's one of the first, quote-unquote, Bond films. Because it was 1967, they did the one with Woody Allen, Peter Sellers. Yeah. Orson Welles is in that. David Niven's in that. There's several people called Bond, various names of Bond. Jimmy Bond and, of course, James and so on. And it sounds like the plot line otherwise, I just glanced at it on IMDb, is similar enough to the storyline, including having a Le Chiffre, who is Orson Welles, in their version... That's the movie that introduced, it may not have been an original song, although I think it was nominated for the Oscar, or even won the Oscar, so it had to have been original. This very famous song, The Look of Love. Oh. So talk about tonal differences with that one and this one. But that movie aside, we're not covering that one, we're covering the Daniel Craig one. My God, the blonde Bond! He's now done five of these movies, they've all succeeded pretty well, some of them have been damn good. This is the best one of the five, or the four, I can't comment on the one I haven't seen yet. I saw Skyfall again not that long ago, I still liked it, but not as much as I had the first time. But Bev and I watched this one together. It's got a lot of action. We just set him in to go extraordinarily sexy with the women. And Craig himself. You talked about the Speedo thing. My Ooh, God. mama. Because he's homaging Ursula Andress from Dr. No That's all right. those years ago. She looked incredible. He might look better than she did in this homaging type scene. It's a toss-up. So you just saw it, I'm assuming, yesterday. I saw it a few days ago. You're a fan, I'm guessing, right? Oh, yeah. Apart from the poker problems, which we will discuss. <laughs> His hair color aside, which I will never forgive, I've always liked Daniel Craig's take on Bond. It reminded me of a slightly less chauvinistic and sexist Sean Connery take on it, right? Because he's going for much more gritty, hard man Bond. Not much humor like Roger Moore did. That's right. And even Brosnan. I've got all the nostalgic fanboy love for James Bond in its entirety. I've seen all of them multiple times. And this one... It's hard for me to believe that it's been 15 years that Daniel Craig has been in the role for that long. I saw it in the theater when it came out. I really loved it then, right from the get-go, because you also know I'm a big Chris Cornell fan, and this is one of my favorite opening. You know his song. (laughs) Plays in the opening and the ending. It's worth it. It's a good song. It's a great song. This movie had me right from the get-go, and frankly, the opening scene to this movie is pretty cool, too. Black and white homage to the 60s, although these movies have always been color movies. But that's an homage to the old cinema time frame. Casino Royale is my favorite of the Daniel Craig movies. And I tend to rewatch it once a year or every two years on the outside. Just for fun more than anything. So before you suggested we do it for the podcast, I think I just rewatched it on my annual watching like a month ago. So just (laughs) well familiar with it going into this. It's Daniel Craig's best performance. Vesper Lind is one of my favorite if you want to call them quote-unquote Bond girls, but I like her as a character probably more than any of the other female lead characters that I've seen in any of Daniel Craig's Bond movies, certainly. Okay, I'm with you on that. And I would certainly stretch that probably even to Pierce Brosnan movies because the Pierce Brosnan-era Bond female characters were always kind of ridiculous. The GoldenEye ones. 
Isabella Skorupko, I think is her name, as the good girl. I liked her an awful lot, and she's cute and sexy. Okay, fair. And, of course, Famke Jansen in her introductory movie to American audiences. Yeah, and listen, I love I love Famke Jansen, and I love Xenia in that movie, but the female assassin that crushes oh, she's ridiculous. Men, she's ridiculous. But right? memorable, at least. I do agree. Eva Green has never been an actress I've loved, necessarily, partly because I think she has a bad agent. Somebody said about Sharon Stone way back when and Angelina Jolie. Not so true about Jolie now, maybe. We're talking 10, 12 years ago they said this. These actresses, and I'm including Green in this, have everything you want. Green even more so when it comes to sex appeal. Oh my God, the score factor in this movie. It's a 95 out of 10 with her and certainly with Katerina Marino as Solange, who is the woman that Bond doesn't seem to sleep with but does romance, and then she gets tortured and killed. And then we already said Craig himself, and other people too, but those three people, oh my God. But Eva Green, Jolie at times, and Stone at times, are so much better than the material they get, and they could have had, and they've all had good roles, but they could have had some incredible roles. So just focusing now on Green here, the year after this movie, which was a breakout for her, because she'd been in a few things before this, but not that much, but the year after this, she does The Golden Compass with Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman and so on. So they did two movies in two years together. I don't know if they are in any scenes together. I forget. I haven't seen that movie in 14 years. And then she was a pretty good bad guy in Sin City, a dame to kill for. But nobody saw it. Where are the good roles for this woman who's got all the tools? Because she is staggeringly beautiful. She's certainly got acting talent. She's got a certain amount of menace and charisma in her. And then that look when she's about to die towards the end, she's willing to sacrifice herself and drown. It's pretty good. Actually, quite a good moment. And then if you look back at this, that she was always lying to Bond and conning him, that she was going to steal this money. When you watch the movie through that lens, I don't know if it's quite the level of Kim Novak and Vertigo, which Roger Ebert said you watch a woman who's going through hell, I guess, through the entire film because of what she's doing to the lead character. And we don't know that until the end of the movie. That's the same thing here. I've liked her and what I've seen. I've just not seen a ton of her. And aside, frankly, from this movie... The only thing that I have any real recollection of Eva Green in is the Penny Dreadful series that she was in. TV series, okay, right, yeah. With Timothy Dalton, so oh, Bond, Bond connection there and some other well-known actors as well. But you're right, other than that, for somebody who's clearly as talented as she is, it's hard to pick up on a lot of big roles that she's had in the last 15 years, which is a bit of a shame. So maybe it's the agent then. It may well be. We don't even meet her until an hour in. She walks in, I'm the money. Later on, we find out from M that things slipped through. They didn't check their own people enough, which is a bit of a weak excuse. Yeah. Like all Bond movies, you could drive trucks through certain plot holes, and that's a big one here. Did you like that intro, by the way? It, yeah. It falls squarely within chauvinistic, sexist Bond territory, but the I'm the money and then hit the response every penny of it is pretty witty. I like that. Typical for Bond, but also I like that getting right to the point. I'm the money. But and can, then she is so money, if I may. I was going to bring this up towards the latter stages as we got through more of the plot of the movie, but since you raised it right now, I take it then you are a fan of the notion of Vesper always playing this long con throughout the movie? Well, I don't like it because she's doing evil, terrible things, but she's also been, according to M, manipulated, and she's had no choice because mm -hmm. they capture somebody. That's a Blue Velvet thing, right? That's what's going on in Blue Velvet the whole time. Yeah, that's the Romanian love knot that she's wearing, right? Is meant to mm -hmm. be like reminiscent of the family that I think they're holding captive and holding yeah. over her head. And I don't think the movie's saying that she pretended to be into Bond when they are boning constantly at the end. When he's basically said, I'm quitting the job I just got. He's a brand new 007. He's brand new at doing it, but he's already quitting it. And we know, of yeah. course, he's going to stay with it because that's what always happens. But she's been going through something before the movie even started. 
And so she had to act that she cared about him. And of course, they battle constantly. But then one of the better scenes in any Bond film, and everyone who knows this movie knows the scene when he's had one of his many battles with people during the poker match. It's one of the more violent poker games of all time. It does get broken up over several days, but he more than once has an assassination attempt against him, yeah. <laughs> including using the defibrillator, which she helps him use later on. Now, in fairness, though, Ryan, as somebody that's played a number of live poker tournaments in Vegas and otherwise... You've also faced mortality? That's part of the game. Like, you accept that there will be assassination Usually attempts. Usually it's three, isn't it? He only faced two, so he was under. Yeah, I was going to say, he actually got away a little bit easier than okay. most people do, so fair. I want to put that Very out there. Very fair. But she's not really into him, I don't think, in the sense of, okay, forgetting... What we know about a real character, at that point in the movie, the first time you see it, you probably assume that she's on the up and up. She helps him by grabbing the guy's gun, and then Bond ends up killing the guy, but then she faces the PTSD, which you've rarely seen in a Bond film in the history of your life. It's not yeah. him doing it, although we do see him pour a drink with a bit of a shaky hand, and like you said that earlier about guzzling down all that alcohol. Again, it's not this Connery thing of, oh, well, positively <laughs> shocking. You just murdered somebody. You're just going to throw that off that easily? But here's the love interest going through it. And then Bond's response is very sensitive. And like I said, a very vulnerable moment for her and for him to get in the shower with her, fully clothed, when he still has a job to do, and she does too. And she's not even bloody. I'd forgotten that. I haven't seen this movie in quite a while, unlike you. I thought she actually was bloody and just didn't clean herself off, but it's psychosomatic. Right. I can't get the blood off my hands. It's a Lady Macbeth type thing. Out damn spot. And then he sucks the blood, no blood actually on her hands, off her fingers. It's not a sexual thing, but talk about intimate. The finger thing was a little strange to me. I know what they're going for, and I agree with you. Obviously, it's a display of intimacy, and he's just trying to emotionally support her in a way that... Or the only way that he knows how. I don't think Connery or Moore would have had a scene like that in their days. Or Dalton, or Brosnan. Maybe no. Brosnan, possibly. Maybe, maybe Brosnan. Because Brosnan's also in GoldenEye, been told by M. Because, of course, Judy Dench crossed over. She did M in those movies with him. Yes. And she did, up until Skyfall, all the movies with Daniel Craig. But she's the one that says in the GoldenEye film... You're a dinosaur. I think she says that then to him and about how he's a sexist, whatever. And then also the bad guy, Sean Bean, says, have you drowned out all the screams of the women with the booze and by having sex with other women? Self-awareness that Bond had never shown before. But even with those kinds of lines and Brosnan being a little bit more human in those films, I don't think he could have pulled off that either. As could no previous Bond, other than maybe Dalton, the action scenes that we've seen in all the Craig versions, but the parkour in this... Yeah, and the fight I, scenes as well. I do agree with you about that. And I really do like that about this Bond movie, at least. And I'm a little bit sad that that kind of consciousness about some of the consequences of what's going on in these movies wasn't really carried forward nearly as effectively for the other Daniel Craig Bonds. Because I thought it was a really great moment to say, oh yeah, maybe Bond is this guy that is so emotionally shattered or withdrawn that he can kill somebody and shrug it off and go play poker again. But 99.9% .9 of humanity would really be struggling with the fact that they just watched two people get beaten to death. But the reason I asked you about your feelings of the overarching Vesper Lind plot... In Who is a plot line through, and I don't know about this latest movie, but the other ones. Yeah, but... She's always a subtext for him. Exactly. He misses her so much. When he says at the end of this movie... The job's done. The bitch is dead. He sells that line, but that guy is crying inside when he says that line. He is. But what I really didn't like about her quasi-heel turn at the end, when we find out from M that she actually had stolen the money, and then we get the 15 to 20 minute chase at the end that leads to her dying, and then him ultimately finding Mr. White. He would have killed her, by the way, had it not been for the fact that they're trying to kill her themselves. The bad guys are. He was going after her, yeah. and he was going to kill her. That's implied, certainly, yeah. And I wish they hadn't really taken it that far 
one of the worst Bond movies is unquestionably in Her Majesty's Secret Service for a couple of different reasons. A lot of people don't agree with you. I know. And I don't think it's the bottom of the barrel. I just think there's a lot. That worst Bond, at least. Unquestionably, the worst Bond, Lazenby. But in that movie, of course, he gets married. He's happy. And that is the realization that, okay, well, Bond is a double O agent. He can never have this kind of life. He can never be happy. His wife is just straight up murdered. And he's left a bit of a broken man as a result. Okay. And I kind of wish that they had taken a similar arc in this movie. Because I have no issue with them needing Vesper Lind to be a little bit of a sacrificial lamb for the future Daniel Craig movie so that he can have that broken element of himself, that little bit of rage that carries forward. I just think that you watch their relationship grow, you watch both characters develop in really interesting ways, and they have this coming together at the end, which is kind of heartfelt and sweet, and you get the sense it can't last and something's Mm going to happen. I do agree with you. I don't think the intention here is for the screenwriters to say, oh, it was all an act. She was playing him all along. I believe that they want us to... She fell for him. She fell for him, exactly. The sex was good. You know what he can do with his pinky finger, right? So, like, well, also, then again, his testicles were so bashed. I don't know. Even when he recovered, was he really recovered enough to be good in bed and to not himself be saying, you're so hot, but I can't do this. So oral, and I guess it is, for you, not for me. He's a giver, Ryan. What can I say? I don't know if he is a giver, but he may have to be. <laughs> he may have well, by the way, since I said that, let me do the nutshell because it does play into this. I had a lot of nutshell ideas, but I thought I would use the nutshell idea for this one. Oh, and I actually looked it up because I've been quoting this for a long time, but I had to find the exact quote. So Casino Royale in a nutshell, missing the point entirely. As Eddie Murphy said in his stand-up special, you don't have to kick no nuts to hurt nobody. You can just graze nuts. Because <laughs> yeah. when La Chifra is bashing his testicles over and over with that thing, Graze him. That would have been enough to torture him. And also, of course, the line with, you just scratch my balls. (laughs) Scratched? Okay. Maybe that's an English expression. I do have, by the way, another nutshell. I'll give this one right now. At least La Chifra didn't eat Oreos. (laughs) Clinging around. Clinging around. I have a cookie here. I don't have a good hand. I won't eat it. When I do have a good hand, I do eat it. I finally spotted his tell. He eats it, of course. He very visibly pops it in half first and then eats it. It would have been a fun Easter egg if the filmmakers had included, even if not Le Chiffre, one of the ancillary players at the table just had cookies on a plate next to them or something, (laughs) just as a callback to Teddy KGB. But just to wrap up the Vesper thing, I didn't like the fact that it just cast any kind of doubt over that development of their relationship. I would prefer that they cut that 20-minute sequence out and Mr. White can just kill Vesper Lynn and steal the money or something. Maybe they're transporting Oh, you don't him. like that they go off together and he quits? He submits no, no, to prison? No, not that. That I absolutely like. They I don't do. like her heel turn where she steals the money and then he has to chase her down. I would prefer okay. that they were on the road to happiness. Maybe they had to put the money on some sort of digital transport device to take it to M and they get hijacked and Vesper dies. Oh, so you wanted the on Her Majesty's Secret Service ending then? I wanted that. Except yeah. they're not married. I don't like the doubt that the heel turn of Vesper Lynn casts over everything else in the relationship. My belief is the same as yours, but I still think you can make an argument that, you know, maybe she was acting. It's possible. I don't think she was. But I don't okay. think so either. You but... can make the argument. And she does haunt the other four movies, or the she three does. movies, I'm guessing, maybe No Time to Die. It almost seems like, I guess we said this already, that he is acting out of revenge for her. Because Mr. White is in at least two other Bond films. He's yes. in Quantum of Solace, and he's an inspector. I didn't see his name in Skyfall, and I didn't see his name in No Time to Die. But he's Jesper Christensen, who's been working for 45 years. He does play Mr. White. At the end, 
I had written a note when Bev and I watched the movie that he was shot and killed. And I remembered, oh, wait, I know that Quantum of Solace, and a rare thing for a Bond film, if not the first time ever in a Bond film, picks up right after this left off, maybe five minutes after the Bond, James Bond, which is the last line of the film. That may be the only time a Bond film ever actually ended with that infamous, one of the most famous movie quotes of all time. And I think every single Bond actor has said it at one point or another in their movie. But he didn't kill him because he's taken him. And at the beginning of Quantum of Solace, he's in the trunk. Mr. White lives for quite a while. And I guess he's part of Spectre, but they couldn't call him Spectre at first until I guess they did Spectre because of rights and all that kind of stuff. I think that's true. But I also kind of liked the fact that for all of his Superman antics in this movie, ultimately Bond cannot save himself in this movie. And it's only because of Le Chiffre's own problems and the fact that Mr. White's had enough of this guy that he survives at all because otherwise Le Chiffre would have just cut his junk off and left him to bleed to death. Right? Well, also, Lighter saves the day in a way because when Jeffrey Wright, who we've seen recently, actually, because he was in Ali, we covered that That's only right. a few months yep. ago, he's the one that steps in and says, no, no, don't kill him. I'll stake you so you can keep being in this game because Bond is out of the game. He had lost and needed money, but he couldn't buy in that way. And it's only because Lighter is going to give him money. But he is going to just take a knife and say, okay, fine. If I lost, I'm going to kill this terrorist, meaning Le Chiffre. But then they want information. He's supposed to be the guy they get to, to get to bigger people. That's why Bond's even doing any of this stuff. Because otherwise, why has this been allowed to happen by MI6? But that's why. So Bond is rash, and he's still young. So Vesper saves his life at least once with the defibrillator. And Mr. White saves him in that sequence at the end. But also Felix, in a way, doesn't save him, but stops him from doing the wrong thing. We are meant to believe in this movie that he is a young double-O agent and he is still making mistakes. And even though he believes himself to be unstoppable and he is unquestionably near superhuman, he is vulnerable and fallible in this movie, which is kind of a little bit of a neat twist on what we're used to seeing out of James Bond, who's usually an unstoppable force of nature, right? Well, the Roger Moore ones were more comedy. Yes. And he could still do action stuff, but it was more with a wink, almost always that way. Dalton was more of an action star. Connery could do everything. I think Connery still the best Bond. I think Brosnan was a hell of a good casting choice. He was supposed to play Bond really in was. the 80s, but they couldn't get him out of Remington Steel, and that's why they cast Dalton. And Dalton was fine. He's never given much credit by people. I think he did a decent job for more serious movies. They didn't want the comedy that Moore had done. They wanted more serious movies with the younger guy. Mm-hmm. Craig seems to combine all that stuff. I forget when we talked about this, but I think we have in the last several months, that when people were so upset about Daniel Craig, I think they didn't know who he was. But see Layer Cake and talk about a great love interest in that movie too, Sienna yes. Miller. Oh my God. But that movie, you can see why. And I don't know if that's what got him this role because it was about a year and a half or so when that got released before this came out. So maybe there's not enough time for people to see that movie, which was an English film effectively too. We talked about it on Snatch probably because Matthew Vaughn was involved in that and then he directed Layer Cake, which that's is right. an excellent film. It's one of Vaughn's best films. And I think it's one of the reasons why he got Bond, but I may not be right about that. Then it was the whole thing about him being blonde and they didn't know who he was. But Craig's been acting for nearly 30 years. You look at his resume, we're looking at the early 90s when he started. He'd been around for over 10 years when he got this role as it was. By the way, if we ever cover him again, I guess Logan Lucky has NASCAR in it. I was just thinking that too. We've covered bigger stretches than Logan Lucky. Before. <laughs> That's a good movie too. I like Logan Lucky. I didn't love it that much, but I was looking to see what Craig has ever done sports-wise. That's the closest it gets beyond this one with its poker stuff. But I lost my train of thought where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, the notion that the other Bonds, what they could and could not do. But mm-hmm. this one seems to be more overall versatile. No, he's not funny like Roger Moore was. And he may not be as great as Connery, but he's up there close behind him. And he does yep. have the aid of a pretty good screenplay. So you've got Paul Haggis, 
coming off a Million Dollar Baby and Crash the years before. 2004 for Million Dollar Baby, Best Picture winner, which he wrote. Then he directed and wrote Crash, which won him an Oscar. Two Oscars, actually, for writing and producing. Controversial, but it's true. And then this movie comes out, and he's one of the writers on this, along with Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who also worked on a lot of Bond films with the resume, a ton of Bond work. And also the producers were Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson. Broccoli is Cubby Broccoli's daughter. He yep. produced so many Bond films along with, what is that guy's name? I forget now, but another guy back in the era of Connery and into the Moore years. And then also Michael Wilson is Broccoli's stepson. They still produce these movies to this day. But they did a great job casting a guy who could play all these kinds of things. And I think that it would have been hard to find somebody who would have been better in that time frame. Maybe Clive Owen. People talk about Idris Elba, but he wasn't really well enough known, I don't think, at that point to get that role. And that would have been a bigger deal to cast a black guy. Now it would be a matter of saying, let's do that. Let's be different and cast somebody different. But they weren't going to do that in 2006. You could say that would be BS, but it's also just true. They weren't going to do that. So Craig, despite the fact he wasn't that well known, was a pretty great piece of casting. I agree. I also agree that it's hard to think of who would have done a better job. I could see Clive Owen doing it. I would have loved to have seen Idris Elba doing it even back then, though I know what you're saying. It was early enough in his career that it would have been really out of left field, race aside. The only other one that was kicked around at the time was maybe Hugh Jackman. Aside from the fact that, yeah, he's Australian, but nonetheless, he's... So was the guy in... Lazenby was Lazenby was, that's right, yeah. But I like Craig a lot, and I agree with you. The casting was great, and that takes us to... Le Chiffre, Mads Mikkelsen, which is another reason why... We've done such great stuff since this. I think he's a great Bond villain as well. And proof of that is not just he plays the stoic, imperturbable villain throughout most of the movie. I mean, he is perturbed when he's almost chopped to pieces, but... And his left eye is a little perturbed, much like me. Left eye, but as he warns his friends, it's nothing sinister. It's just like a blood vessel. But that scene where he is torturing Bond, the testicle smashing scene... There's something just so matter-of-fact and unwavering and steely about that performance. I can just rewatch that scene, and it's almost masochistic, I suppose, to do that. But, (laughs) wow, you keep yourself in good shape. What a waste. Or you keep your body in good shape. What a waste, because they've stripped him down naked and tied him to this seatless chair. But just the way that he's casually swinging that... that, uh, Knotted rope. Knotted, heavy rope, yeah. And then the way he describes the torture, because it's so true, right? And any man that has ever been... Like you said, even scratched the wrong way knows how painful it can be to be hit in the nards. And so the chief is... The nard dogs. Yeah. The The office. The nard dogs. (laughs) That would be a terrible name for a gang where this was their mode of torture. They just call themselves the nard dogs. How does he describe it? He says, it's the simplest thing to break a man and it's not just the pain, but rather the knowledge that if you don't break soon enough, there will be nothing left to identify you as a man. The mind games he's playing, he's not wrong. And then watching it happen just makes Bond's response that much more impressive because apparently he's not just superhuman. He also has superhuman testicle strength, I guess. Because No, this is what they would do with MI6 agents is teach them to withstand torture <laughs> yeah, and you, laugh it off. You can withstand torture, but having your testicles pulped is a whole different ball well, game. What he's doing, though, at first is this, oh my God, that hurts so bad, but F you. Yeah. So that's what it is, is Craig's playing that emotion too. Again, Connery, great actor, one of the all-time great stars, at least, of basically half a century of acting. Roger Moore, not so much. The other actors, not so much. But I don't know if any of them could have pulled that off. No, I don't think so. That instant reaction of, that's the worst thing I've ever felt in my life, and the next thing's going to be even worse than that when you do it again. But 
I've been trained to say, nah, not going to happen. And he actually laughs at him with the whole you just scratch my balls thing. Yeah, that is one of the great moments. The first time I saw this movie, I think one of my favorite moments in this whole thing was when he is getting tortured and starts yelling, no, no, no. And you think, oh, he's breaking. And then he's like, to the right, to the right. Mm-hmm. And then that leads, of course, to getting wanged again. And then like, yeah, you just scratch my balls. I think that's the notion behind when you see football players will do this, where they bash their head against the locker before they go out to the field. Inflicting pain on yourself. Now, of course, Craig can't because he's tied down. Or Bond can't because he's tied down. But I think it's the same logic. Mm-hmm. That if you just go, oh, please don't hurt me. That, of course, he's going to do more. But if you basically give him the double bird and just act like, bring it on. Even though, obviously, it. you're physically going to feel the same thing. But how do people walk across hot coals? It's mental. Obviously, Bond's been trained to, despite what's happening to his nether regions, make it mental. Don't make it physical. That's the only explanation. And it's mm-hmm. one of the great visceral torture scenes of all of Bond, especially when you think of some of the more ridiculous Bond versus... No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> yeah. And he's fully dressed, but that's probably the most famous, maybe seen in the whole Bond lexicon, but certainly torturing Bond and almost killing him. Great example, actually. You said it before. Bond was saved by Mr. White coming in. Otherwise, he's dead. Well, same thing in Goldfinger. The only reason he gets out of that trap with the laser is because I have information that you don't know about. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Okay, fine. <laughs> he doesn't will his way out of that. The Simpsons do a parody of that, where he does yeah. use a quarter or something to deflect a laser. But in the actual Goldfinger scene, he just smarts his way out of it and gets lucky because if Goldfinger is really that sadistic, he's not getting out of that and he's going to be cut in half. Well, that's just it. And that's part of the reason why I love Mads Mikkelsen's character so much in this movie because it's not like Mads Mikkelsen or Lashifa says to him tell me or I'm going to break you, tell me or I'm going to break you, and eventually he says, all right, listen, I'll untie you and you'll tell me, right? It's like, you're not going to tell me, are you? And Bond says, no, I'm not. He's like, all right, well, then I guess I'm just going to have to kill you, and he kicks him over, he's about to cut him from stem to stern kind of thing. Mm -hmm. As much as Daniel Craig in this movie and his version of Bond is this implacable force, he just will not be stopped from trying to achieve his goal. He might fail, and he does almost fail a couple times, Mm -hmm. but he's not going to be stopped. Lashifa is the same thing. Lashifa fails a couple times, but he also will not be stopped. He's just implacably going to keep going after Bond until either one of them dies, and ultimately that proves to be Lashif, yeah. or one of them gets what they want. Well, Lashifa's under the gun, too, because if he doesn't get the money back, and they do attack him, too, don't forget. So Bond goes through two different assassination attempts. One of them is by Lashifa, or at least his woman, the blonde woman that spikes his drink with the drug that could have killed him. But the other time is by Lashif's beneficiaries, who don't like what he's doing in the poker tournament and would have tried to off him there. We'll talk about the poker in a second, but let me give the numbers in the movie. Then we'll sure. get into why we even covered this movie in the first place, which is the <laughs> poker. So the Rotten Tomatoes numbers are outstanding. 94% of critics like the film. 6.2 out of 10 is the average, though. It's weird. I don't think that sounds logical, but that's what I saw on Wikipedia, which is where you have to go Say to find the average. 94% or thumbs up on Rotten Tomatoes, but only right. 6.2 out of 10 was the average. That feels wrong to me, but that's, that's what I saw. 263 reviews, modern movie, not surprising, a lot of reviews. And 90% of audiences, 9-0. But the 1967 original with Woody Allen and Peter Sellers yeah. was trash around to me. As I checked, it's thumbs down all across the board, basically. Casino Royale 2006 was ninth that year at the box office. Cars, sports movie of sorts. We were really get desperate. It's on Disney Plus, making it free and easy to get at. Yeah. Was number three. Talladega Nights, we covered that years ago. Was number 12. Nacho Libre. Forgot about that. A wrestling movie we could cover. It. Don't like it very much, but we no. could do it. Not good at all. Was 29th. And Rocky Balboa, you'll know we'll cover that one day, was 38th. And Mason this movie got... The Line Dixon. Oh, God. Terrible writing. Mason the Line Dixon. 
And this movie got lots of BAFTA nominations in various categories. Mm-hmm. And I believe the editing was nominated in various places, including with the cinema editors, which is a big deal. If you get that, you usually get an Oscar nomination, but nothing from the Oscars for this movie. And that would have been the most logical thing, maybe the editing. I guess not the visual effects exactly, possibly cinematography. That has come in the later films. I think the Skyfall film won for sound effects or something like that. So okay. they got some technical nominations and won some Oscars. The Bond films aren't usually awarded with Oscars. It's mostly box office and fame. But okay, the reason why we cover this movie in the first place is the cards. So first of all, at one point in the match, well, early on, in fact, Le Chiffre and Bond play heads up and Bond loses, but that's when he spots the tell. And Bev and I had a lot of fun with Giancarlo Giannini saying to Vesper, so when you play poker, you have to have a better hand than the other guy. Bond needs to get an ace here on the turn of the river. Good God. And of course, he's doing that for the sake of the audience because Texas Hold'em, I think Rounders is one of the reasons why that got to be a pretty big deal on sports channels up here in Canada, Sportsnet, TSN. You saw that everywhere. Maybe not so much now, but for a long time. A lot of us, I'm sure you too, you're younger than me, were really into Hold'em partly because it was always on TV. So this is not even 10 years later. I'm sure that's still part of the reason why. But you have to explain to your movie audience and your Bond crowd what's going on. But it was so written. Yeah. This movie doesn't feel written most of the time, but that stuff isn't so good. Partly because I know what he's talking about. I watched a lot of Hold'em. I know how the game's played. But early on as well, we see four jacks beat an ace-king full house. Yeah. What are the odds? Okay. The winning hand, Bond gets a five, six, seven, eight flop. So he's got the cards that make up Oh, all on spades the flop. on the flop. Yes. Yeah. So he kept, what was it? Five, seven suited, right? Seven he kept five, five seven of spades. Yeah. The six and the eight were in the flop with, I think, an ace. Because that's what Le Chiffre has. Ace has the boat with ace high. Okay, he's got four spades. But he wins with that and he gets the improbable straight flush. The four can come up or the nine can come up. And he does get it. But what are the odds that these kinds of incredible hands would happen? Yes, it's multiple days, the tournament seems to be. Or at least multiple hours. I think it's multiple days. But this many great hands in one tournament with this many people? Because at the very end, all of them have great hands. It's just that good, better... Awesome, the best. I think we see over the course of the movie, and I'm including the brief little home game we see first with Le Chiffre and yes, his, his little early on, friends, right. where we don't see any of their hands, but we just see him say, All in, I have two pair, you have a straight draw, you have a 17.6% chance, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. They're trying to demonstrate that they understand the basic concepts of calculating, or he understands at least the basic concepts of calculating the odds. So maybe he had eight outs going to the river, so 17, whatever. Fine. Then we see Bond playing in the Bahamas, where he beats the boyfriend of the, the car, right? Yeah, of the horse riding lady for the car. Wherein, by the way, he is a mega dick because when that guy is trying to bet on the river, he's made like a set of kings on the river, right? Three kings. First of all, that guy played that hand really weird, and I don't understand. You mean Alex then, not Bond, but Alex, the opponent. Was that his name, Alex? Alex Dimitrios? Alex or something? Dimitrios, yeah. Yes, so he played that hand very strangely. At the river, he is the first person to bet. He's trying to write a check for 20 grand. The dealer says no. Table stakes. Table stakes. He's got his car keys on the table. The dealer still says no. And Bond's like, hey, well, hold on now. Just let him do it. At that point, Bond has the nuts, meaning the best hand you can possibly have in this hand. And he's just letting this guy dig his own grave by giving up his car. I'm like, okay, I get it. Bond's got to get the Aston Martin because it's the iconic Bond car. With that great car crash towards the end when Vesper's laying in the road. Different Aston Martin, anyway. Is it different? I wasn't sure about that. It is? Okay. Because it's the classic Aston Martin. He wins in the Bahamas, and he ditches it when he goes to Miami. Different location, of course. Different location. Okay, yeah. He could, at that point, say, no, no, here, I got you beat. I got three aces, kind of thing. So, 
Anyway, he's a bit of a dick there, and he also drives me crazy because nobody who plays poker more than once a year is ever going to haphazardly have mounds of chips sitting in front of them. You mean Bond or... Bond. Okay. Anybody that plays poker at all will always keep an orderly stack of chips in front of you. So you can usually, count them. Usually in 20s, right? Because then mm-hmm. you know if this chip is worth like $5, I like got 20 of them, each stack is 100 bucks. Well, they're playing easy. for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but okay, but the, millions. Same, the principle still applies. You keep them in orderly stacks. But in the Bahamas, he's just got like a mound of chips. Some of them are stacked. Some of them are toppled over the place. That doesn't happen either. But that game in the Bahamas was the first instance where you see this wild, cooler, and unlikely sequence of events happens where one person ends up paying it all to another Bond flops three aces. This guy spazzes out, keeps betting, and ends up with three kings on the river, but he still loses because one monster hand beats another. And then, like you said, once we get to the ultimate game against Le Chiffre, a couple times we see these wildly unlikely hands. And the first example of that, like you said, is the four jacks beat the full house, right? Kings full of aces. Ace over kings, too. Was it aces full of kings or kings full of aces? Okay. Either way. (laughs) Either way. But what drove me crazy about that hand in particular, too, You get a bet, right? And let me preface all of these pedantic complaints I'm making. If you've got a movie that just has one poker scene in it and it's just sloppily done, I don't care. But the whole premise of this movie is that Le Chiffre and James Bond are two fantastic poker players. And Bond has to beat him to bankrupt him. Exactly. To defeat terrorism. (laughs) So that is the focus of the movie. And that being the case, I wish they had just done a little bit better job to make it slightly more realistic, or at least make it that it had to prove to us that these guys were actually great poker players, because as it looks... They're lucky. They're just incredibly lucky, right? So let's look at that hand you just described, the quad aces versus the full house. It was a Bond bet 500,000, and the Shifra raises him to a million. These kinds of minimum raises where you just double the initial bet. That's also not a good poker move. That already says... Bet a lot more, you mean? You would raise a lot higher okay. than that. He raises it to a million. Bond makes it two million. Le Chiffre's just like, all right, 41 million, right? So I was like, <laughs> okay, wow. That escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's all you think. One, half, one, two, 45. <laughs> like, okay. And Bond calls it off because he's got a monster hand. That hand played out wildly, and it would have done that anyway because you both had monsters, and it was like an incredibly unlucky spot for James Bond. And then fast forward to the last hand of the game, and you're right. It's four people. All of them have enormously strong hands, and it's just that Bond has pretty much the strongest hand possible in poker short of a royal flush, and he's hit one of two cards on the turn to make that hand. Exactly. So he didn't flop the flush. No. He flopped the chance for a flush. And one of the other players has a flush. Meaning the first guy, we see the, the Asian guy. His cards are turned over. He has a flush. He had but a Bond has flush. A, yeah, because yeah. Bond has a straight flush. So Bond was hoping to get a flush, which is great. But let's say it had been four, five, six, seven, or five, six, seven, eight, and then a king, or a ten, or a two. Yeah. He has to assume that if he has a flush, somebody else could very well have a spade themselves, but a better spade. Talk about lucky. We talked about it in Rounders years ago. Yeah. Yes, Matt Damon's character is an extremely talented poker player, as are so many players in that game, including Teddy KGB. But the whole thing about how, oh man, Gretchen Maul, it isn't luck. It's great playing. It's also luck. My nutshell originally, I said I had a lot of nutshells in mind. One of them was a play on the I Love You Man thing. You remember in I Love You Man early on when Paul Rudd is trying to make friends with John Favreau and yeah. they play cards? Yeah. And he stays in with, what is it? What are you staying with? Do seven unsuited or something like that. He's got the worst hand he could possibly have. Yeah. But then I guess a two and a seven come up and he makes two pair or full house or something like that. But why are you staying in the first place? Bond's hand in that last game, five, seven suited. Okay, you're suited, but that's otherwise not a very good hand. 
Now, he's no. got a lot of chips, so you could argue that. The other two guys don't. LeShiefer does, but he could be trying to weed them out of the game and then get LeShiefer later on. But then he gets what is a good flop, but still not an unbeatable flop. It's not like it was the 5-7 and then 4-6-8 right away. Right. Then you stay in because you're probably not going to be beaten. It's almost impossible to be beaten because there was an element of luck. Oh, huge element And if you don't know much about cards in this movie, then you don't really dwell on it, but obviously we are right now. Most of the time, I cock an eyebrow at uh, portrayal of the game, like toppling all of your chips into the middle of a mm -hmm. pot. You never do that because you have to be able to count. The dealer in has my to club, I will splash the pot whenever the blank I right. please. Now, to the credit of that movie, absolutely. If you're playing in like a private club or a home game, do whatever the heck you want, right? But if you're in a casino like they are here... And you're With playing, millions of dollars. Yeah, the dealer is always going to want to count the chips. He's never going to let you just dump them. If you dump them into the opponent's chips, then how the heck do you verify right, the counts? Yeah, yeah. This movie wants you to believe that Bond will pick up a read on Lashifra, and ultimately, Lashifra plays him with that read, but nonetheless, this is what he's trying to do. But poker's all a game of information, right? And that information you gain a couple of different ways. It can be by bet sizing, it can be by when you bet, when you check. It can also be by tells, sure. But we never see anything that happens before the flop in this poker game. We barely ever see anything that happens on the flop. Usually we're just seeing the end of the hand, right. which is a little infuriating because half of the information Bond would have compiled would be what happened pre-flop. So when we find ourselves in this final hand with four players, two of whom have very few chips left. One guy is six million, one guy is five million. Bond and the Sheaf are both have like 40-odd million or something. By the time it gets to the river, everybody's checked on the flop. Everyone's checked on the turn. Bond checks the river. So he's checked three times. And that, too, is a bananas thing. And I get, Jack, 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 you trap me. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? But you would never, ever do that, especially on this kind of what we call a board, poker hand. There's flushes that are possible. There's full houses that are possible. You would never check that many times. If nobody else has anything or nobody else is willing to spaz out and just shove it all in, then you've just wasted the best hand you're ever going to make in your life. By, by buying the pot, right? By check, 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 checking. If you're Bond, you should have been betting long before this because somebody in that hand is going to have an ace. They're going to have a set. They might have a flush. They're going to have something. So by the time you've made your straight flush on the turn, you should be betting something. Maybe it's a small bet, but you're betting something. You're never just checking that. The guy, for instance, that flopped three sixes, right? On the flop, we see the one guy turn over three sixes by the river. He's made a full house. He would probably be going all in on the flop nearly 100% of the time. You've made a great hand. You've got very few chips left. People are going to call you with an ace. People are going to call you with a flush draw. But anyway, I'm going to go down the ultra-pedant poker route. I was looking forward to this because this is why we covered the movie. And it's it, a lot of fun, but it is pretty badly done. And for those who don't know, maybe we've mentioned this in previous poker movies, but Chris has been sent to Vegas by his local poker club, or was before the pandemic. Yeah, a couple Wasn't times. Wasn't all expenses paid A couple well? times, yeah. So you know what you're talking about. Well, a little bit, but... You do. You know what you're talking about. I like this movie a lot. I love watching it. I watch it every year, so I criticize it with love. All of my poker pedantry aside, I can forgive those things for the fun of the movie. The way the dealer arranges the cards when he's showing down the forehands... I know. The, do they ever do that? Never. Once those five cards, those five community cards, have been dealt and laid out... Don't touch them. You do not touch them. Ever. So if, Before the players did, wouldn't they get yelled at? You would get potentially kicked out if right. you ever started doing right. that. So the fact the that ground, that's a player doing it, but even the dealer don't never. touch Never. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that he starts taking the two cards from each player and sticking them into the yeah. to show you what no, you never that's do that. That's pandering to the audience watching the film. Yeah, but you could still do that because usually what you'll see at a poker table I'll push them ahead. If you're using two of my cards for my hand and three of the community cards on the board, what they'll do is they'll just push the three cards oh, they will do that slightly okay. up. 
All right. These are the three cards from the board that he's using. Your two cards will still be off to the side. Right. But that drives me crazy. Well, that's one of the weakest things in the movie because otherwise the poker is fun to watch and big build up because it is a huge part of this film. It is called Casino Royale yeah. in Montenegro. But I said it earlier and Bev and I mocked it so much in the film. But Mathis, Giancarlo Giannini, I can't say his name right, Giancarlo Giannini's character is all just to do. So Bond needs to get a better hand here to win. He might as well look into the camera and just tell the audience who may not know much about poker watching Casino Royale, Bond better win this turn. If he doesn't win this, then he funds terrorism. We know! <laughs> what I appreciated about Mathis more than anything else is that he's turning to the character who's meant to be an accountant, right? Vesper Lynn's effectively an accountant. Right. And he's saying, there's 25 million in the box. <laughs> and I'm like, she might have a good idea. If anything, she can count the chips. Like, Better than might, you can. She might not know how to play poker, but she can count yeah, the chips. right. His character's left unfinished as well because he gets taken off when Bond's recovered from the ball torture. That's right. At the end. And I think he comes back in one of the sequels, but I don't recall for sure. But that's one of the many hanging plot threads. The Vesper thing is, even though she does die and we never see her again, maybe she's in a flashback in the other movies. I don't know if she ever actually acted in a dream sequence or something. I don't think so. I don't think think she's ever been in a previous or a future movie of the Bond films. But I do think that Giannini may have been in at least the second one because his character's not done. As we said, Mr. White's not done. And we later learn that Blofeld, played by Christoph Waltz, is the author of all of your pain, James. So I guess in this movie, he's the one pulling the strings. That would stand to reason. Yeah. yeah. But of course, that's retconned many years later when they did Spectre. So we've covered, I think, most of the major themes in this. We've bounced around quite a bit. But we do have a pretty good villain, played by a great actor, who got better and better as he went along, Mads Mikkelsen. And I guess Le Chiffre mm-hmm. means either the number or cipher. So Doctor Strange is a villain in that. Rogue One, a hero, as it turns out, in that. That's right. Answering that plot hole in the very first Star Wars film. <laughs> And, of course, Hannibal Lecter on television, which Bev and I didn't watch for too long, but I can see him being good in that. And so many other roles. He's been so good in so many other things. But I think this was one of the first things he did for North American and, I guess, British audiences that made Mm -hmm. him more of a star. But his role is complicated, and he's not even at the end of the movie, of course, because he's dead with probably 20 minutes to go. Maybe even a little bit more than that, but yeah. Much in the same way that I appreciated the fallibility, if implacability, of the James Bond character in this movie. I like the same thing about Mads Mikkelsen, right? So we see him fail in his already weird plan to invest the African warlord's money is to dump it all into shorting an airline stock and then trying to blow up an airplane to get that airline company's stock to fall. Five years after 9-11, by the way. Yeah. So that's a little bit touchy. A little touchy. And it feels like there's an easier way to somehow manipulate the market than to bet against an airline stock and then try to blow up a marquee launch of an airliner. Predating the housing crisis, though, which would have been happening in 2006 when this came out. That's but true. we didn't know it was happening. Joe Average didn't know that's what these guys on Wall Street were doing, which was, yeah. let me say this house, this mortgage you can't afford, and then I'll bet against you not being able to pay it off, and then you don't, and I make money on that, which was so immoral. Probably not illegal, but so immoral. That's, in a way, what the is doing. <laughs> yeah. But not mortgages, that's all. Yeah, except with a lot more blowing up. He fails there, loses this guy's money, realizes, oh, crap, I got to win back... He stands to make $150 million from this poker game, I think it is, when it's all said and done. But to think... And he has to win that money. And he has to win. There's no runner-up To save his life. Yeah, I appreciate this is like a one-table tournament, essentially. There's only, you know, whatever it is, eight or ten people playing in it. But still, he got incredibly lucky at various points and then incredibly unlucky at the end. But this is a game of luck. For him to wager basically his life on his ability to win a poker game, it seems like a wildly insane thing to do. 
The way I choose to interpret that is that they want us to believe that this incredibly intelligent and capable man is so driven by desperation that he's willing to take this risk. Ultimately, it's just an excuse to have a Bond movie take place at a card table in a casino, so whatever. And go across the world, of course, Bahamas, and they have a little bit in England, obviously, yeah. because it's where MI6 is. Czech Republic, Italy. This is one of those worldwide Bond set, films. Yeah, great set pieces. I guess every Bond movie. film does this, at least three or four countries in almost every Bond film. And, of course, plenty of studio settings, because you can shoot interior scenes anywhere. But, yeah, it does seem like a bit of an excuse. <laughs> yeah. Not the Bond car at the beginning of the movie, which is the classic Aston Martin, which is a beautiful car and obviously a callback to the Connery Aston Martin, but the one that he picks up in Montenegro, which I think is a DBS. Dear Lord, I love that car so much. It's probably my favorite Bond car of all time. It doesn't have any gadgets in it really, save for the little fancy glove compartment, but wow, that is a fantastic (laughs) car. And it does have a defibrillator in it that saves Bond's life Yes, when Vesper comes along. She's also the password, and she's stripped. What is that line again at the end? You stripped it from me. Bond really does have an arc in this movie, considering he's a rookie. It's almost like a rookie baseball player saying, I had a great year, I'm quitting. Yeah. And you <laughs> I know, met a great woman, I'm quitting. And you know how you said earlier, the scene with Bond and Vesperlin in the shower is that sort of very vulnerable moment that maybe no other Bond could have pulled off. I think that's also true of the moment at the end, because I think that's a great Daniel Craig moment as well when he's speaking to Vesper Lind. Whatever I am, whatever I have left. I have no defenses left. That's the basic you idea stripped that. me He doesn't them. say I love you, but that's his way of saying I love you. Yeah, and that's like a fantastic piece of acting. And then again, books. you have to project what this woman's going through, which is I was using you and I did fall in love with you and you're that in love with me. What do I do now? Yeah. And that's probably why she's willing to die at the end. It's a little bit unbelievable that she's basically killing herself in Italy, in Venice, I guess it is. But when you think of it that way, it makes more sense because she's going through what Kim Novak does in Vertigo, which is I did something terrible to this guy and then I started actually having feelings for him, but he always had feelings for me. How do I reconcile this? I can't. I'd rather just die. I think you've made a good case for that, but that was just like one layer too much for this first Bond movie that Craig was being cast in. Maybe they didn't want to just give her the thing they've done in Bond movies before because it's almost always, and it did happen here too, where Katerina Marino is the victim. There's almost always a Bond girl victim and then the main Bond girl who does survive towards the end. Not Tracy in Honor Majesty's Secret Service who he marries and not here with Vesper, but usually they survive. So maybe that's the idea that they didn't want to have it be that she's just a victim like so many mid-movie Bond girls have been. That's fair. So give her I some juice. That. And yeah. if Eva Green was more of a player in the industry, she might have insisted, I have to have some kind of real depth to my character. And that does give her depth that she was always yeah. playing him until she wasn't, but then she still was, so she couldn't reconcile that fact. In my view, it doesn't break the movie. It doesn't break the character. But it does make the movie even longer than it needs to be. It is a fairly long It's a movie. long one, too. That's the other Not thing. Not quite two right? and a half hours, but it's getting on to that. If you didn't have the need to wrap up that sub-thread, you could maybe cut an easy 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes out of that ending sequence and just wrap it up much more quickly and still yeah. have him go after Mr. White at the end. But... Yeah. So Martin Campbell, we haven't said his name this entire podcast, oh. directed this film. He did Goldeneye, which is my favorite Brosnan Bond and one of the better Bonds, I think, period. But then he didn't do other future Bonds except for this one. So he didn't do one after this like he would have thought he maybe would. But they've had a few Sam Mendes Bonds, and he, of course, is a great director. Vertical Limit is something that Martin Campbell did. Just sporty. I guess at some point we can cover it. Mountain climbing. David Arnold, who worked on Bond scores a lot, did the music for this. And, of course, we talked about Chris Cornell doing the theme song. One of the better theme songs. And Stuart Baird was the editor who worked on Bond a lot and also did cut Last Boy Scout, which we covered 
Was it this year or last year? One of the last two years we covered Last Boy Scout. Time has no meaning. Another one, yeah, right. <laughs> Still pandemic times. Another movie that's spuriously a sports film. I think we talked about the cast mostly with small roles for Jeffrey Wright and so on. But the parkour. Now, that's really early on we talk about it at the end. That was something that was probably playing off of, along with all of the fight scenes, the way that Matt Damon had been portrayed in, at this point, two Bourne films. So Bourne oh, and Bond, so? they had to keep up with this new version of James Bond. When I wrote a review of Bourne Supremacy, back when I wrote reviews, I think I called him the new James Bond. So they had to keep up to what people like me were thinking. And so they got a guy who can actually do parkour, and then Bond can't, but Daniel Craig does sell it along with the stunt doubles pretty well, that they're climbing this gantry and they're hundreds of feet in the air and they have this long fight scene and chase and all this stuff. And at the end, that guy's dead. Bond just assassinates him, somehow survives himself. But it's pretty well done. And a surprising yeah. thing for a Bond film to do something like that. Because again, I don't think the other Bonds would have any chance of making that scene believable. The one thing that Daniel Craig has in greater quantities than any other Bond, and I include Sean Connery in this, who was a bodybuilder when he was younger, Craig just has a look of raw, brute strength to him. Even though he's probably the most ripped he ever was in any Bond movie in this one, even the later Bond movies, he's still a strong-looking guy. So he really does sell that scene, you're right. I agree with you that Bourne was sort of taking on the mantle of the modern Bond. I think a lot of people were certainly viewing it that way. And it probably did apply a lot of pressure to the production of this movie to modernize Mm -hmm. the portrayal of Bond. The way I saw the parkour, though, was this is very much a sequence of a time and a place. The mid-aughts where parkour was suddenly all the rage and there was videos popping up online of people parkouring off of urban settings. And we even saw it parodied in The Office with Michael and Dwight parkouring around (laughs) Dunder Mifflin. We always see one or two of these set pieces that are just very much like, oh, this is kind of hot right now, so we'll focus on this a little bit. But I thought that was a great action sequence. The villain... He must be a professional parkourer or something, right? Because the guy's monkey climbing up the steel girders of this building being erected. But I do appreciate that they didn't have Bond match this guy move for move. Instead, Bond found ways to brute force his way up there. And it still took an incredible amount of athleticism to do it, unquestionably. But he's ramming cranes and stuff to get up there where this other guy's clambering up steel beams. And Bond takes an ass kick in this movie, too, because he ends up cut up. Forget the testy torture later on, almost. His face is cut more than once in this movie, including in that sequence. He is banged up. Yeah. So as far as the depiction of the sport, we've already talked about that. It's ludicrous. We love watching Hold'em. But nothing like this would ever happen. It's absurd, even though it's fun to watch poker. And as far as the score factor, as in can you score, I said it before, it's a 25 out of 10. (laughs) Eva Green alone, Daniel Craig. (laughs) What a beautiful man he is. Bev was loving that. And then Katarina Marino in her brief role. If I may quote Wayne and Garth, swing. Can't fault you on that score, Ryan. And I would say for a score, number-wise, I'd say 8 out of 10. I would have probably said that in 2006. I would have said that two, three years ago, and I'll say it now because I don't think it's really aged badly, and it's still entertaining as all hell. Great scenes. We've criticized some things right now, but we still obviously had a great time with this movie and a pretty good way to end our year. And what's been an up-and-down year for podcasts, but lately we've had some really good movies. And this may not be quite as good as The Way Back as far as emotions or The Peanut Butter Falcon, but this is encompassing almost everything. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of sex appeal. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of fun. Not a lot of humor, but a lot of fun in this film. And as we've said more than once, it's probably the best modern Bond film. Well, then again, it's one of the best of all of them. All 25 now, I guess it is? Yeah. I have a lot of nostalgic fondness for some of the older ones, so I don't know where I would rank this overall. But I agree with you. It is my favorite of all the Daniel Craig movies that I've seen thus far. 
I like your score. I think 8 out of 10 is fair. Like you said, it does a lot of things well. And I think one of the reasons why it does age well is that it's one of the rare Bonds that doesn't rely heavily on some sort of gadgetry shtick. There's no cue at all. There's no cue. What is there that's going to age badly in this movie? It's basically Bond going through the motions of some very much on-the-ground spycraft, playing some cards. It's like a more human movie. It's less him rocketing around in a jetpack or shooting something out of his He's not even really all that sexist like he'd been called in the past, or should have been called in the past. M says that to Brosnan's version of it many years before, Mm -hmm. and it should have been said about all the Connery and probably more ones, but it'd be hard to call him sexist in this, I think. He has his moments. (laughs) That comment about, I am the money, every penny of it. Yeah, all right, so... 2006, though. 15 years ago. Yeah, no, but you're right. Within the broader spectrum of Bond sexism, this ranks pretty well. Okay, well, a lot of fun. Great way to end the year for us, I think, with Casino Royale. Okay, in two weeks, we'll dip into the sports section of Disney+, and we'll cover our fifth Kevin Costner flick. But it'll be the track and field biopic, McFarland, USA. We've done four Costners, and this is another time he's not an athlete. He was the GM in draft day. He was a player in Tin Cup. He wasn't a player in Field of Dreams. He did play a little bit of sports in that, though. He had a catch. Right, he had a catch. And, of course, he was also in... Molly's game. He's the dad. That's always the So he's actually not played more often than he's been some kind of mentor or coach. But still, five movies he's been in we've covered. That's got to be the most, certainly for a starring guy. He's not the star of Molly's game, but a big part of it. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. And the email address, as always, is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Chris's last sip of the beer. My drink is long gone. Find us wherever you can get podcasts. Look for us online. We've done 93 episodes. So good work, Jimmy Bond, Jimmy B, and take her easy. Go get in the shower with a sexy banker slash trader and enjoy it while you can because she might end up drowning herself in the river. Merry Christmas! (laughs) Your lady just killed herself. Merry Christmas!